Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Uh, I feel like I haven't done a Not That Kind of Rabbi in a while. I've, I've been rather busy, I must say, uh, with the things that use different parts of my brain. Uh, I'm doing some work in the political sphere uh, uh, right now, uh, working with uh, uh, a Green, the Green Party here in Ontario. Uh, there's an Ontario election coming in June. And and if you hear this after June, you'll have already known there was an election. Um, but I, uh, I've been working with environmental groups and uh, green political parties for a long time is one of the things that one of the hats I wear. Uh, and it's really interesting because I'm reading a book right now by uh, Rabbi Arthur Ocean Wasco. Uh, he is one of the Jewish renewal uh, rabbis of note, one of the, the great uh, rabbis in that movement. And he's uh, put out a book called uh, Dancing in God's Earthquake. And Rabbi Waskow has for years been an eco-spiritualist and has really tried to pe uh, bring people the connection of their spiritual life, their connection to the planet that we live on, the universe we are in, and the bodies we inhabit. And the not just the moral and ethical obligations one can have, but the true connection that of unity that the idea that if we are walking through this world, we are in, in one way completely unified and part of a web of, of life and existence. And in the other way, we are unique beings of all kinds, animals, plants, humans, we're all unique, but we all have to come together to make the whole thing work. Um, you know, people sometimes think of this in terms of an ego system, where it's a pyramid and you're at the top and everything else is for your support. Uh, and I think that's a lot of the way we're living these days uh, or an ecosystem. And you are just a part of that. And it's a circle, not a pyramid. And in that circle is you a few times and everything else a few times. You know, I connect this sometimes to the growing uh, movement right now of the um rehabilitation of the idea of the hallucinogenic drug and spiritual work. You know, I remember reading Carlos Castaneda as a kid and peyote and shamans and uh, medicinal herbs that changed the way we saw the world and Adolf Huxley in the gates of perception. Uh, there was a whole movement. Uh, um, Michael Pollan's written a very good book on uh, hallucinogens and how they became criminalized. And now they've come out of the shadows to help people with palliative care, um, guided LSD uh, trips, um, that when the people finish with the trip uh, in a safe and, and, and uh, supportive environment, they feel less fearful of their death, uh, these people in palliative care. They feel more that they are part of a universal flow. Thich Nhat Hanh just passed away uh, in his 90s, and he was a Theravadan Buddhist uh, from Vietnam who had Plum Village as his main piece in France, uh, where uh, he became a, a, a major spiritual leader in the world. And Thich Nhat Hanh, before his death, said, um, I am not gone. When he was talking about dying and being dead, and he said, I'm not gone. Uh, but if you listen carefully, you will hear me in the trees, in the wind. You will see me in the flower. Uh, and, and I love that because it's, it, it's this idea that, as uh, Stephen Jenkinson says in his book, Die Wise, he talks about 
life, the human lifespan is not life. It is the human moment and the flow of life. And we are to partake. So I really um, been thinking a lot about these different pieces coming together. Because um, I guess I, I've got a book that I've put out called uh, I Thought He Was Dead. And, uh, you know, it's a playful title because it's really about the idea of being a public figure and then kind of going into the the, the background and the shadows and advising and, and, and helping people to get their message out. And then, you know, 10 or 12 years later, uh, 13 years later, somebody sees you at a party and, it, and this is Ralph Bainmerge. And you go, oh, inside you're thinking, I, th I thought he was dead, which is what I did with Mort Saul. Mort Saul was a comedian, 91 uh, an inspiration when I was a stand-up 40 years ago. And um, I literally looked at the, the paper and saw uh, uh, Mort Saul dead at 91. And I, I blurted out, I thought he was dead. So um, all of these things come together in different ways, but they're all things worth thinking about. But one more thing I, I do want to say before we uh, introduce my guest is... Um, about um, at this moment in time, while I'm recording this, we are in the middle of uh, what um, what I find amusingly uh, <clears throat> called the uh, Freedom Convoy that has uh, occupied uh, the nation's capital. Um, I find the whole uh, idea uh, sad uh, of what's going on here. Uh, but I also think that there are elements of this that if we do not pay attention to them, if we just move on and accept that they're there and they can grow, uh, we have made a grave historical error. When people show up at rallies, um, not just saying that they want to uh, replace the government that's there, everyone can say that in an election, um, when they have Nazi flags and Confederate flags, racist flags, anti-Semitic flags, uh, that I find myself not looking for the funniest thing to say about them, not looking to, to think of how foolish they are, but to realize that there is an undergrowth, a cancer in what, in, in what this movement is doing that has over the years, you know, if you look at history and I love history, um, you'll see that some of the most dangerous and darkest people in our recent history, in less than 100 years, were people that we thought were amusing and ridiculous. Uh, Hitler, Mussolini, these people were laughed at as buffoons and not to be taken seriously. Donald Trump, not to be taken seriously. Uh, and yet there we are with these forces unleashed of people who are uh, angry about not getting what they were told was their lot in life. And the vast majority of the people in that convoy, uh, the vast majority of truckers, by the way, are uh, uh, minority and racialized people. Uh, but the vast majority of the truckers are the, the angry white man. And I'll always remember uh, CNN, uh, when Trump was in his ascendancy to power in 2016, on CNN in the election coverage, there was a black host and a white um, supremacist uh, who was trying to appear uh, terrifyingly reasonable at the time about, you know, hey, we're just asking that, you know, everybody stay in their lane. Um, and the, the host, uh, to his credit, said, you know, I think I understand what's getting you angry. And the guy said, well, what? 
And he said, you as a, a white man used to have an 80 yard head start. And that is now down to a 20 yard head start and you're pissed. And the man just stared at him. And I thought, that's exactly right. So when we think of privilege and we think of the removal of privilege and the backlash that ensues, we, we should really uh, not find out the funniest thing we can say on social media about the joke of the convoy. I, I think we have to start looking at the darkness, the, the, the danger that is upon us. And for those who promote it, and say, uh, they have a point, they're good. Don't worry, that was just a few freaky guys. The rest are good. Uh, no, not good enough. Uh, this pandemic has done all kinds of things to all of us, but that does not mean that I want uh, my freedom, even if it harms you. Uh, we, we have to care for each other. We have to do something about it. So there's my, uh, my brain right now and what's rattling around in it. Uh, I do want to now introduce my guest. Um, uh, I've only met Brian um, through um, other people. He, he was imminent. He was going to be coming to this <laughs> neck of the woods. Uh, my jazz friends and my ministry friends were telling me, trust me, this guy's going to show up too. But then <laughs> life happened, pandemic happened, things happened. We didn't get to meet. Uh, but he's a supporter of this program, and I appreciate that a great deal. Mm, happy to do it. Brian, welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. It's a pleasure to, ha to have you. Thank him. you. It's a delight to be here. And, and thanks for those uh, those wonderful reflections to get us going. There's there's so much that, uh, um, that I resonate with in all of that. Well, let's talk about it. What, what is it that you found that you're resonating with? Well, I think part of it has to do with that uh, when I first found out uh, the title of the uh, of the program and, and the way you use that, not that kind of rabbi, I immediately thought, oh, not that kind of minister. I like that. I may actually <laughs> use it. But being, but being a good Canadian historian, I will attribute it appropriately. Um, but I think it's the whole piece about being able to um, face the dark times that we're in, but face them from a place of hope. So there's a, a fellow who teaches theology at Knox College, Charles Fenchum. I don't know whether you've run into Charles yet yeah. or not. Um, grew up in South Africa. Dad was quite a prominent, his dad was quite a prominent New Testament scholar in South Africa. Um, Charles uh, has worked in the area of uh, what we Christians call missiology. Um, and so uh, in conversations with uh, my indigenous colleagues, uh, to use the word mission it is, it still has a, has a raw edge to it uh, for them. And so what we found ourselves doing around the little congregation that I'm part of here in, um, in BC, in Brentwood, in Burnaby, British Columbia, um, is we talk about missioning. So it, it, it's an act of presence. Um, in the world. And so uh, Charles would say that, that missioning has to take seriously the dark times that we're in. So the old Jane Jacobs um, book that talked about dark times, he picks, he picks up on that and says, you know, what does it mean to be a voice of realistic hope um, 
in the midst of that kind of legacy of generations upon generations upon generations upon generations of arrogant rebellion against God's invitation to companion in the care of creation. And so for me, that's, that's kind of the essence of what the church is about. Uh, the church, uh, the reformers in the uh, 15 and 1600s talked about a, a visible church and an invisible church. Jürgen Moltmann, one of my favorite theologians, talks about a manifest church and a latent church. But it's to remind us that um, God's agency and God's work is not only going on within the institutions that claim to represent that, uh, but it's also going on everywhere in the world. And, and part of your uh, responsibility um, uh, as a as an ambassador of, of that God um, is to discover and align with it and engage in constructive discerning dialogue with it. Uh, not to reject those that are, are quote unquote other and different. Right. Uh, so I think that the other piece that I particularly that ties in with this is that whole sense of um interdependency i'm part of the suzuki elders out here um kind of on the edges of them uh but the suzuki foundation declaration of interdependence i, I use a lot in in my in my teaching and and in my own um you know formulation of my worldview um but it and it's a you can find it on the suzuki foundation website it's, it's what, is, just, what is it talk about what does it say um well basically it's a statement of ecological interdependence Right. Of, of, of all of us, the, the sort of thing you were talking about in terms of ecosystems. And I love, I had not heard it put the way you did earlier, ecosystems and ecosystems. I think that's brilliant. Yes. I, when I read that the first time, I was like, yes, thank you. Yep. <laughs> that's a kind of, yep, that's yep. it. That's got it. So let's, let's go to uh, first principles, though. The idea that um, that word, right, the G word, yeah. that's the tough word for a lot of people. Um, because, uh, you know, I think if I go around any room and say, so if I say God, you say, and then I get such different things, um, uh, because some of it is sort of, um, Santa God, you know, yep. the kind of pediatric God that, uh, <laughs> a lot of people leave behind and say, yeah. and I shall never return again. I have uh, an ex, I have an ex, uh, evangelical Christian friend who calls God, the God he rejected, the big eye in the sky. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know what? As a, It's sort of like grim fairy tales about mm. go, go in the forest and they'll put you in an oven and bake you in a pie. Yeah. Um, and kids <laughs> kind of need to think, well, maybe I shouldn't just walk off into the forest then. Uh, so as a social uh, control idea uh, for children, I certainly grew up that way, thinking... Yeah. You know, but it was also the other side of that um, piece was conscience, that yeah. it, it was about, look, if you think nobody's watching you, so I therefore you can do whatever you yeah. want. God is watching you was a way of eventually internalizing the idea of even if no one sees me stealing this, I'm still stealing this, you yeah. know. So I, I don't mind that uh, in youth. I just find that the way we explain things is problematic. So if I say God to you, what do you say God is? Uh, so I would say that God is um, 
the life-giving energy that infuses the entire universe. Um, and I think there are a variety of um, stories that help us comprehend what, what Thomas Merton uh, famously called that ineffable presence. Uh, Howard Thurman, the, the great black mystic and activist, used to talk about the divine presence. Um, but I think that, that it's um, it, it basically, it's, it's the, the, that Old Testament concept of, of ruach or breath or spirit. Um, it's what infuses all of us and gives us light. That's interesting. And the, Waskow, sorry to interrupt. But yeah, Waskow, no, no. Waskow, who I, I referenced in the beginning, um, spends a great deal of time talking about breath and ruach, spirit, mm -hmm. breath. And that the four letter, uh, well, not quite word, but the four letters that were supposed to be God in, in the Hebrew tradition, the Jewish tradition, yud Hey and vav Hey, is really a breath exercise, a yud yeah. Hey, vav Yeah. And, and it's the breathing in. And he um, famously in the renewal movement uh, uh, created a, a prayer in, in a prayer for love that we are... Uh, the trees breathe life into us and we breathe life into the trees. Yeah. And that, that, that mm -hmm. is existence. I guess the thing where people leave off is, is there an intentional creator or is this all just physics and science and astrophysics? Yeah. yeah we did a, um, back in 2018, we got some government money, Canada summer jobs grant money, and then a grant from the uh, Calvin Institute of Christian worship down in Grand Rapids. And what we wanted to do was, so we hired four young jazz musicians, two of whom identified as Christians, two of whom didn't. Um, and we asked them to go around and interview other jazz musicians who had played for Christian worship services. Um, so there are um, currently, I think, eight different congregations out here in Vancouver that do regular jazz worship services. Uh, two of us do it weekly, one does it bi-weekly, and then the others do it monthly. Um, and so they interviewed probably 80 jazz musicians. Um, and in that 80, there were maybe five or six of the ministers in those congregations who conduct the jazz worship services. And so we've got about 100 pages of uh, transcripts of those interviews. Um, I haven't yet had a chance to really go through them carefully, but they will be um, central to a, a book that I'm um, in the midst of writing called what can the church learn from jazz mm. um, but what was fascinating to me was there wasn't a single jazz musician who denied a transcendent dynamic in their music mm. right so they they all had a sense that there is a spiritual presence a spiritual energy a spiritual force that's um infusing their music and, and their lives. The way they described it was fascinatingly hybrid, right? So the scholars talk about hybridity um, and, and the, the various influences that come to play in shaping how we have become and how we are re-becoming. Um, and so that's the piece that I want, that I, I want to uh, dig into a little more. 
because it seems to me that that's what I would call the latent, what Moulton would call the latent church. I mean, they, God is at work in the energy that is generating that music, that is generating that community, um, that, that creates the community. And so, so um, there's a musical sociologist by the name of Christopher Small, um, and he's written a book called Musicking. And his idea is that when you, that, that you have to see, it goes back to the ecosystem. You have to see the entire ecosystem that goes on around and into and flows from a musical performance. And, and it's, it, it's that, that broad, broad sense of interdependency that manifests itself in that hour or two in the performance of the musicians, but there's also the audiences that are there. There's all of the crew that create the space for that performance. There's the compositions that have gone into it. There's the impact on the audience and the musicians that flow from it. Um, and, and so it, it's all this very, very dynamic. Um, most of these, all of these musicians would say spiritual process. So how then do you enter into dialogue with that hybridity in relationship to the story that you um, live out of, that, that you see as a, as a representation, not the representation, but a representation of what God is up to in this beloved creation of God's? You know, I, I had the... Um privilege i do a, a, a once a month podcast for jazz fm uh, 91 here mm -hmm. in toronto or yeah. there in toronto i'm in hamilton the um, old I mean, back in my back in our day it was ryerson yeah cjrt <laughs> cjrt yeah. ryerson campus radio uh yeah. well it's come a long way it has but, indeed but the um it's called the, the podcast i do for them is called the torch and i talk to some of the elders of jazz about things mm. And uh, I was really lucky that I got to talk to Sonny Rollins oh. a little while ago, yeah. right? So that's yeah. crazy. That's just in and of itself. I was like, I can die now. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I interviewed him and we talked about spirituality and music. Um, and, uh, you know, because some, sometimes I'll talk to someone like that and they'll go, you know, I don't, I, I guess so. It's not really where I think. And mm -hmm. they move on. But he said, no, no, the entire enterprise of what I've been doing is about spirituality, uh, not about jazz, it's about spirituality. Yeah. And really what he was distilling it to was the, uh, the only times that he feels that he's actually uh, playing, uh, he can't play these days, but uh, yeah. playing uh, is in total presence. Yeah. Right. And, and when you think... Yeah, and when you think about the spiritual um, discipline itself, total presence is an, an, uh, a key to it. You know, uh, you, you if you're not here, you can't be here. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it's a no, that's right. Yeah, uh, no, I, I think that that's very true. And we, um, I think we probably end up with 250 different jazz musicians playing at, at Brentwood a year. Um, you know, for a lot of them in the jazz service, I would say 80% of them would not identify um, as Christian. Mm. Uh, none of them have said no to coming and playing for a worship service. Mm. And I think part of it is they realize that, that their 
their voice, their way of expressing themselves will be respected. And in that respect, then we get respect to, I mean, what I've said to, to all of them is, look, I'm going to take one of the songs that you're playing tonight and they get to choose the songs. It's, it's you come and play whatever you want. Um, and I'm going to read theology and my theology into them. And they're, they're quite comfortable with that. And some of them get quite fascinated by that. And we've got a couple of brilliant young jazz musicians as our music director, a guy by the name of Dan Reynolds, um, graduated from McGill. Um, and uh, Ben McRae, who just graduated from the CAP uh, University program and is actually studying for ministry himself. Hmm. Um, but, to, but to create, so for us, it's a, this was a small congregation that the church authorities had tried to close down three times. Um, about 15 people left and, and a buddy of mine went in to, to work with them and brought me in to do a bit of consulting. And they started asking if I'd come and work with them. And I said, yes, the fourth time and haven't had a moment's regret. <laughs> so I'm there half time. But what they ended, what we discovered. So Corey Weeds. Yeah, yeah. Been, yeah. So Corey's been a good friend since before he opened the cellar. So I think we met in 2000, 2001. Um, so Corey came in to, to do the first jazz service there, which was a, a service of lessons and carols at Christmas. And he said to me after the service, he said, do you have any idea how good the acoustics are in here? And I said, no, you know me, I haven't got the ear for that. And um, so he said, well, they're amazing. And so out of that emerged uh, this sense of, well, what have we got? We haven't got people, but we've got space. And the space is particularly welcoming to musicians. So what are we going to do with that? And the congregation bought into my love of jazz. I'm not a jazz musician. I don't play anything. I just I got hooked on, hooked on jazz my first year at U of T. Um, grew up in Niagara Falls and Fort Erie. Came to U of T in '65, and lived at Knox College because if you were a student for ministry, you got a half price room and board. <laughs> um, and so the drill at Knox College was you came, you dumped your suitcases and hooked up with a couple of guys and off you went down to Sam the Record Man's uh, <laughs> to see what you could buy for your little Seabreeze record player. Yeah, yeah. Sam's an A&A. And at that point, at, yeah. And at that point, it was, um, I was a bit of a folky. But you had to pass the folk floor to get to the, the <laughs> jazz right. floor That's to get right. to the folk floor, right? That's right. And so at the top of the stairs is Oscar Peterson's Canadiana Suite. And my particular interest was Canadian history. So $3.99, I bought it. Sure. And I've been hooked ever since. That's crazy. <laughs> <clears throat> we used to go, there was a place uh, beside the, those record shops called Frank's, where you'd get hot dogs. Oh, I remember that. Yes. Right. So <laughs> I came from a kosher home. Uh, so my great transgression was to go downtown with my friend to get a, a 45 at Sam's or A&A's and uh, going to Frank's and getting a cheese dog, meat and milk together and a hot dog that wasn't kosher. <laughs> so to me, uh, that was living large. That was oh, just that's going wonderful. for it. Yeah. You, you know, there's a, I remember years ago, I was working at the at Jazz FM and I was thinking about really there's such a thing as thinking jazz, yeah. right? That there's such a thing as jazz as 
a way of living your life, not just a, a genre of music. Uh, spontaneity, improvisation, uh, courage, uh, all kinds of pieces to it. You've got a whole thing going with jazz think. Yeah. So how do, how do you infuse jazz into organizational development, into uh, ministry? In, uh, you know, I've gotten a sense of that here, but how, yeah. how, does, how does one become familiar with jazz as a way of thinking? So I came out to Vancouver in a bit of a backstory. I came out to Vancouver in 1985 to be dean of the Presbyterian College here at UBC um, and teach at Vancouver School of Theology. And while my discipline was church, Canadian church history, my interest was organizations and the kind of leadership that helped them flourish. And I think it's important in this environment of focus on charismatic heroic individuals as leaders um, to adopt a different perspective that says you're invited into an organization to contribute to its flourishing and delivering the benefits it intends for the whole of society. Um, so I taught there for 17 years, uh, decided to leave, um, set up a consulting business. I retrained by doing the, the uh, executive coaching program at Royal Roads University. But I was looking around for a, a kind of distinctive handle on, you know, because Organizational consultants and leadership consultants are frankly a dime a dozen. Um, and so I, I literally one day just sat down and, and Googled jazz and organizations. And I hadn't run across much and there wasn't much as a result of the Google search, but what there was, was fascinating. And one of the key uh, people who became a bit of a mentor, a lot of a mentor, was a guy by the name of Frank Barrett. Um, so Frank was a, a jazz pianist, played in the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, um, went on to do doctoral work at Case Western University in the early days of an academic discipline called appreciative inquiry. Hmm. And so this, was, this was an organizational theory that said, uh, you know, I mean, the dominant way of thinking of organization is what, what are its problems? You know, it's, it's a classical SWOT analysis. What are the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats? You do that kind of analysis um, and you get totally wrapped up in the weaknesses and threats. Right. So SWOT, that's, that's SWOT right. analysis. Right? Exactly. Yeah, here's, yeah, the, yeah. here's the problem. How do we fix it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these guys said, well, that doesn't seem to be working all that well. What would happen if we focused on the strengths of the organization and built on those? And, and so it's, what's the organization doing right? And what can it do better? And what kind of leadership, what kind of conversations, literally conversations do you need to convene in order to make that happen? Um, and so uh, Frank ended up writing, he taught for a number of years at uh, Fielding Graduate Institute, which is an online graduate school. Um, and, and also interestingly enough, at the, the Naval um, Officers Academy in San Diego. Um, and some of, the, some of the best organizational and leadership stuff is coming out of the military, which, which still blows my mind. Yeah, yeah. 
However, so Frank wrote this way. And what I discovered was this collection of essays from a conference. Uh, I think they were called it Organizations and Improvisation or Improvisation and Organizations. But it ha ended up happening at UBC in 1992. And there's a collection of all the papers. Um, uh, Mary Jo Hatch, who at that point was teaching at Western, um, was one of the people. But, but Frank's essay was seminal for me. And it was kind of seven ways in which jazz is a great model for a flourishing organization. And he ended up turning it into a book a number of years later uh, out of Harvard Business School Press called Yes to the Mess, Surprising Lessons in Leadership from Jazz. And so it's that, that book is, is well worth your listeners, you and your listeners reading it, it's brilliant. Um, I'm writing this down. Yes, yes, to the mess. yes to the mess. This is good. This is good. <laughs> um, so, so that was so, and and it really has to do with uh, how do you improvise? Um, Warren Bennis, who used to be one of the great leadership gurus in the '80s and '90s, in '94 wrote an essay. Um, for the Stanford Business Review or uh, um, Business uh, Magazine, in which he basically said, I used to use the orchestra conductor as an image for leadership, but I don't do that anymore. I use the jazz group because, because there's far too much surprise going on and we need much more collaboration to bring the wisdom of everybody into the mix. Um, so, and there were, were a few people, there was a, a wonderful guy, Brian ended up dying of, of cancer hmm, three years ago now, um, guy by the name of Brian Heyman. Um, so Brian started in the steel mills in, uh, in Hamilton, Tefasco, um, ended up uh, as uh, VP of HR for Royal Trust and then left Royal Trust when they got taken over by the Royal Bank of Canada. Um, but he's a jazz pianist. And so he spent the rest of his career consulting and, and digging really, really deeply into the dynamics of jazz and organizations. And so we became close friends. Um, and he was actually supposed to come out here and do um, the consultation we had after that research those students did, um, but ended up dying of cancer before he could, he could make it. So let me ask you something here. What I think I'm understanding, <clears throat> when I watch a, a, a jazz quartet, quintet, whatever, two, a duet, um, when I'm watching them perform, and I don't think this is exclusive to jazz. I, I think no. it, it mm -hmm. can be a rock band, um, but um, it only works if everybody kind of loses consciousness, self-consciousness particularly. Enters into flow. Yeah, and then that's what Sonny Rollins was talking about. When yeah. he actually was in the flow, that was the night. And, yeah. and then he'd realize, I can't try to do that again. It's not going to work. Yeah, that I don't control it. That was it, and that's yeah. not it right now. Um, the woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, uh, what was her name? Yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert. She said, the, the horse of creativity uh, rides through your room as you're writing. You can either notice that and get on. Yeah. Or you can fight it and, and try to think stuff, stuff up to write about. Yeah. Uh, 
so I mean, it's like there's the old rock band joke, you know, how can you tell if the drummer's platform is even he's drooling out of both sides of his mouth? <laughs> <laughs> right? Because it, you know, I'm a horrible drummer. Uh, I, I play I play hand drums, but I can't. I tried to teach myself when I was younger, and I, I just couldn't do it. I mean, I can't get independent movement, but I can play some hand drums. So uh, I, I've noticed every time I make effort to do something, I'm gone, and every time I'm gone is when I find myself. I, I, I find my the, the music itself, and you kind of if you're ever in a band and you look up at someone while you're playing and you realize that all of you are, are not really here anymore. You're in some other thing in a flow um, that works. Now, when I think of um, the idea of organizations and uh, I, I've been a big fan of entrepreneurship, yeah. right? Not so yeah. how do we unlock the creativity of people? One of the things that I've, I, I've often said is, you know, the person is driving to work and they're listening to uh, Hart doing uh, Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> and she's nailing it. I mean, absolutely nailing it. And you're driving and it's dun 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 And then you stop in the parking lot and you turn the car off and you turn to yourself and go, okay, you stay in here. I'm going into work. <laughs> well, and, and, and you wonder how you got there. Yeah, and I can't take you with me because I don't think I can't trust that you will be taken care of in that room. So I think that one of the other um, so there were two other people that were seminal in the early stages of uh, thinking in jazz about organizations and leadership. One was a guy by the name of Stephen Nekmanovich, who wrote oh, yeah. a book called Free Play. Writing it down. And the other was a guy by the name of Donald Schoen. So Schoen taught education at MIT. For years and years and years and uh, was a, an amateur clarinetist and pianist uh, played jazz um, but he wrote a, a couple of books around the idea of the reflective practitioner hmm. and so his argument essentially and, and professional education schools have picked up on this a lot um, medicine uh, law uh, education um, you learn best when you're in the midst of practicing you know, I mean, to take somebody for three, four years, take them out of their situation, put them into a hybrid situation or a hothouse situation like a university or a college isn't a good way of learning. Um, you, you learn by reflecting on your practice. Um, but the, the connections that both of them made was the most common form of jazz in human experience is ordinary conversation. So you and I have been playing jazz as long as we've been conversing this morning. Mm. Um, our instrument is our voice. Um, we've got a structure, vocabulary and grammar around which we're improvising so that we can understand each other and those who hopefully are listening to this can understand. Um, but every time we enter into a conversation, it's different. So if you were to ask exactly the same question or make exactly the same comments you did 15 minutes ago, the conversation would flow in a different direction. So let me, there would be overlap. Yeah, let me jump into that because uh, one of the questions as an interviewer over the decades, a person will ask is, um, what are you going to ask me? Right? <laughs> right. Like, I get that all the time. What are yeah. you going to ask yeah, me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And I say, look, I, I, I'm not trying to be disingenuous. I'm not trying to be manipulative. I have no idea what I'm going to be asking you. <laughs> and they go, well, what do you mean? I said, if I, well, if I tell you I'm going to ask you this, I can almost guarantee you that two seconds before we start the interview, something else will pop into my mind and I'll, I'll say that instead because whatever is happening at that moment will dictate what I'm going to actually ask you. Yeah. And I've trust in my own uh, um, capacity to stay in the flow that if I just listen and I'm here, then we'll be fine. Yeah. So I'm asking you to trust me in this situation. But that brings me to a point here where trust itself in the creative process and in the ability to um, ferment and create new ideas in organizations or in life, uh, mostly we, we leapfrog over trust yeah. and just go, uh, let's blue sky this, everybody. And people are thinking, well, if I take the chance of saying something mm -hmm. here and it's not the right thing, uh, the hierarchical way this is set up is that the leader will look at me with a kind of a sideways glance and I'll know that's it for me for the day. Yeah. So how do we bring trust? Uh, and that's a spiritual question too. How do we bring so. trust into things? So I think the one of the things that we've spent a lot of time talking about, conversing about around Brentwood is because what we want to do is create a welcoming safe space for musicians to develop themselves um, with no, no conditions. You have to develop this way or you have to develop that way. Um, what we found as we've created that space and welcomed people into it um, is that we get into all sorts of fascinating conversations. Um, and uh, so, so the question of safe space, I once, once asked, two of our grandkids, 18 and 22, two dramatically different kids. One was finishing off a degree in psychology and going into a career in uh, fashion and marketing. The other had just graduated from high school and was at a bit of a loss. And the week before uh, we had dinner with them, um, he'd lost uh, one friend to suicide and two to overdoses. And so I said to them, what constitutes safe space for you? And within about 30 seconds um, from these two dramatically different backgrounds, both of them said where I'm heard with respect. And I had not thought of it in those terms before, but it was one of those blinding flashes of the obvious, a BFO, and, and it's, that's really stuck with me. Hmm. So I think trust comes in... In, in a, a safe space, there's a whole literature around uh, the psychology of, of safety within organizations. And it, it, all of it begins with a sense of belonging. And so once you feel you belong, then you are open to learning. And once you begin to learn, you discover ways of contributing. And once you begin to contribute, you uh, get into a flow of innovation. And so that flow of belonging, learning, contributing, innovation, I think uh, connects with what you were saying before. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. But it all has to do with, am I going to be heard with respect? Because that's what will make you feel that you belong.
And so I think part of our relationship with the jazz community is that they know there isn't a hidden agenda. I mean, a few of them were really kind of cautious before <laughs> hooking up with us at Brentwood. Like, like, what's your, what's your game? What do you, yeah, what's what you your game? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's your daddy? Is he? That's right. That's a, yeah. And literally <laughs> who's your dad? Who's your daddy? And, and, and I've already experienced it's some version of it. I'm not interested. Well, that, that's the other thing in those interviews. I mean, the number of times we ran across jazz musicians who had grown up in the church, but felt in a whole variety of ways especially around their music, that they were abused, rejected, and traumatized. Right. Um, that, that was a thread that, that was um, not there with everybody, but enough that, that it's something to pay attention. I think that's in the resume for jazz musicians, abused, rejected, and traumatized. Yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, my God. I always say to people, look, if you don't uh, choose jazz because you're going to get rich and famous, so you no, can, well, jazz and, chooses you and you got to do it. And, and that whole biblical tradition of lament it, it yeah. is basically the blues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and but but you're not you're not going to get those negative things stop you from making music. Yeah, uh, we've got a um, this coming uh, Wednesday. We've got a wonderful a blues singer and social activist, Alana Gail Bowen. Um, she's in the uh, Canadian Blues Hall of Fame and uh, has been a social activist in the downtown East Side, kind of a, a hybrid. Uh, heritage of indigenous and black. Um, and she does a, a really powerful Billie Holiday tribute. Mm. So she's singing eight songs from that. You know, I, was, I remember once I was, uh, we were doing some workshop at Jazz FM and there was a whole bunch of uh, singers. Uh, I think it was the only women singers. And there are so many women who wanted to be jazz singers in this room. And you, and, you know, they're all kind of looking at each other like, well, there's a hell of a lot of people who want to do this. It's like the first time you go for an acting audition and you walk in the room and there's 14 people who look exactly like you. <laughs> you stop feeling so special at that moment. And, and one of them sort of brought that up, that idea of, you know, how, how am I going to be any different? And I said, you know, I, I don't know much about this, but I do know that when I hear uh, Nina Simone sing, yeah. I'm hearing nina simone sing yeah uh so i said about the only thing you can hang your hat on is authenticity i mean it, find your voice not their voice yeah. it's like the the male singers who sound kind of like frank sinatra mm -hmm. right and you just go <laughs> well what's the point of that but then when you hear a kurt elling there's a guy who's an instrument in and of himself, yeah. you know, Greg, Gregory Porter and people like that yeah. are singing. Now you really start to feel that. And it's the same thing with everything, but like I said about trust, authenticity requires a safe space to be heard and respected in like your grandchildren said, yeah. I, I did a documentary series in, in, in Israel and, and, uh, uh, the occupied territories in the West bank. I didn't go to Gaza, but you know, I, I did, talk to people of all stripes in the region. And when I got on the plane on the way home, I was sad because of how intractable things seemed to be over there. Mm, yeah. And yet I thought to myself, they all just want some dignity. Yeah. They yeah. all want to be yeah, heard absolutely. and taken, taken seriously as people. And underneath it all, they just want to be able to walk their kids to school and be human and be respected and heard. So 
that's the hardest part for us, I think, sometimes. One of the things that that, that struck me back in, um, well, I guess it was the 70s, when I was involved in, in social activism uh, in Toronto. And, and this these were the early days of the influence of Jürgen Moltmann, um, German theologian of, of hope and um, who was one of the early appreciators of liberation theology. Mm-hmm. But in the midst of all of the human rights discussions going on with the, the liberation movements in Africa and World Council of Churches and all of that sort of stuff, um, he wrote a wonderful essay linking human rights with God's rights. He used a lot of kind of Old Testament Genesis stuff. And he said, look, this is about um, respecting God's rights to God's creation to be what God intends. And, and for him and, and for me anyway, that's the source of our dignity and worth. And it's, it's, it's a gift to every creature and the whole of the planet. Um, and so the question for us is, are you going to align with that and contribute to it? Take responsibility for your part in that ecosystem? Or are you going to, you know, um, pull an Adam and Eve and rebel against it and say, I, I can, I, I know, I have the knowledge of good and evil. Um, I can figure it all out myself. We don't need you, God. Thanks very much. And generation after generation after generation um, have compounded the impact of that arrogant rebellion. You see, now I find that interesting because uh, I was just reading something about the, well, Genesis is full of all of this, but the Adam and Eve story. Yeah. Um, that what it was wasn't an arrogant rebellion, but it, it, it was in, in that it was about growing up. It was about mm-hmm. an adolescent, uh, in spite of whatever you want to do to instill whatever you want in them as your children, will have an arrogant, needs an arrogant rebellion to be able to dif- differentiate and become themselves and not just a, a mirror of you. Yeah. And, and that Adam and Eve themselves were going through the pain of accepting the responsibility of being in the world and not mm. being infantilized, not yeah. staying yes. yeah. in the safe uh, space of being cared for without a worry in the world and without an action in the world. And that they had to move themselves into that world and to do that, they had to say, this is not enough. Yes, it's paradise, but it's not enough. I need to have the human experience, including the suffering. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting take on that. I'll have to, I'll have to uh, ponder that a bit more. What it brings to mind for me is one of the, so there are kind of two parables um, in the New Testament that have become kind of seminal for Brentwood. One is the parable of the prodigal son, and the other is the parable of the sower. And so Dan Reynolds, who's our, one of our music directors, has written, actually his graduation project at McGill was a, a, a jazz suite based on Henry Nouwen's The Return of the Prodigal. Um, and so he has worked that up. Um, he's recorded it. Um, we have a wonderful image you may have seen on, our, on, on the Brentwood website by Laura Zarabeski, who's a local artist, brilliant artist of the... Um, uh, Return of the Prodigal Son, um, interestingly enough, with a father that has a very indigenous face and is wearing an orange shirt. Mm. Um, but it's just, it's just a sense of welcome home, kid, let's party. 
And so I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've been doing. Um, I'm just delighted to have you home back in the family enterprise. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and then the, the sower is, you know, how do you take this gift of forgiving and reconciling love that, that has been, um, there's an Old Testament scholar, Christian scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann. Uh, and his summary of the Old Testament is this. The Old Testament is basically the story of a contest between two ways of seeing God. One is, and he would say this is the Abraham story. One is, I will be your God so you can be a blessing to my creation. The other, uh, Brueggemann would say, is a misinterpretation of Moses. Uh, and that misinterpretation is, I will be your God if you do X, Y, Z. Um, and Brueggemann said, in Jesus, Abraham wins. <laughs> right. And so, but those, those two little words, so and if, are so important in, in my theology. Right? This is a God who's offering us, who in spite of whatever we've done, is offering us the opportunity to get into the flow of his care of creation. That, that's what salvation is about. Hmm. Um, and we often misrepresent that God as someone who requires you to do X, Y, Z to gain acceptance. And the X, Y, Z is usually constructed by us to keep us in positions of privilege and, and uh, yeah, one is about receiving and the other one is about transaction. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Earning, receiving and earning. Right. Yeah. Right. And so it's, um, and I, you know, you, you, you listened, I was driving across the Burrard street bridge, listening to CBC and it was the noon hour interview program. And I mm -hmm. can't remember who they were interviewing, but it was someone who was a, uh, was a Santa um, at, at Christmas. And it all of a sudden struck me how often this guy was saying, yeah, you'll get that if you do X, Y, Z. And how in, endemic that is with, within our cultural way of thinking about things. Well, it's the way we relate to each other as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Commodifying each other and looking for the utility of the other person. And uh, if I, even in generosity, you know, in the soul trait of generosity, how does one move from the idea of um, if I give, I must receive? Yeah, that's right. What do I get? What do I get? What, what, what am I getting for this? Yeah. And then there's, the, there's also the uh, anthropological idea of the poisoned gift. So yes. I, I, I'll give this to you, and on the way to handing it over, I'll go, and this costs a lot, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I have a, what, one family member who does that all the time, and I'm just like, you've got to stop doing that when you give somebody something, because you're making them feel like crap. <laughs> no, no, I was just trying to tell them, you know, like I care. I said, no, no, you were trying to tell them how much it's taking out of you to give them <laughs> this gift, so please don't the, do the it. The other anymore. piece that we picked up in our conversation uh, – that whole piece about, about trust, you build trust, uh, you build an organization, literally one conversation after another. Right? I mean, that's, that, that's what keeps a conver a con an organization together, is the conversations that are going on. And the quality of the organization is the quality of the conversations. And over the, over the years, I've come to, to think that there are 
basically three kinds of conversations. One is the um, contentious conversation. You've got to listen to my view because I'm right. The other is the, the, the critical conversation, um, the complaining conversation. I use those interchangeably and it's, it's here's what's wrong. And it probably extends to, and you're the cause of what's wrong. The other, and both of those conversations push people away and you take up all the room. The other conversation is a curious conversation. And that's the only conversation that invites people into the enterprise. What do you think? Tell me more about that. I, I mean, it, it's what I find um, energizing about, about coaching with people. Um, you know, if you're doing it well, you become a thinking partner with them um, through asking them questions to let them think about it and sort it through themselves. Yeah, I mean, the, the uh, I did an interview a while back with a conflict mediator, and I said, well, what's the key to the work? And he said, uh, curiosity. Yeah. I mean, genuine curiosity, mm -hmm. not laying a trap curiosity. Yeah. Well, why would you think that? No, it's not that. <laughs> it, yeah. it's, you it's, avoid it's, the why question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and it, and just stay open-ended. I, I, I interviewed someone on this on this uh, podcast a long time ago who had absolutely diametrically opposed ideas to what I have about things like climate change and all kinds of things about, you know, whether life is a good thing or a bad thing. And, um, you know, when it was over, uh, uh, my friend, uh, uh, Toronto Mike, who also produces this podcast, he said, I can't believe, like, how could you not have just gone after him? I mean... <laughs> Totally disagree yeah. with him, right? Yeah. And I said, my job isn't to actually fight with the guy in front of people. It's to let people hear him. Yeah. They have a brain. They yeah. can figure it they out. Can sort it out. And I am genuinely curious how you can think that the, the, the climate crisis is not about a man-made activity. It's that the sun's thermostat is broken. I said, yeah. I could have just gone, oh, come on. Yeah. But, you know, he genuinely believed this and he wasn't a, 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 a he was an intelligent person. So I, I was just curious. And I right? think that's I mean, when I listen to a few of the podcasts, well, that's one of the things that I really appreciated about your approach to things. And, and you know, you, you don't give them the questions before. It, it's a genuine exchange of of uh, of ideas and feelings and, and you know, soul connections. And, and so I really appreciate that. And it's and jazz. I, it's jazz. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. That's the whole, listen. It's interesting. The learning stuff. Um, early on, uh, there's a, a wonderful book called Thinking in Jazz. It's actually where I got the name for the consulting company, Jazz Think. Mm. Paul Berliner, um, the book's out of the University of Chicago. I can't remember where Berliner teaches. He's an ethnomusicologist. Um, sociologist, but it's, I mean, it's a huge, like it's eight, 900 pages. Um, thinking in jazz. Right. Thinking in jazz. But, but he quotes a, 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 a jazz pianist in and teacher in New York by the name of Walter E. Bishop Jr. And Bishop says there's a, there's a pattern of learning in jazz that almost everybody who's a great jazz musician goes through. And it's imitation to appropriation to innovation. Right. And it's, it's one of those kind of simple 
formulas that goes cloned. And the example he used was, was Miles Davis and Louis Armstrong. He said Miles Davis used to lay in his, as a teenager, laid in his bedroom, listening to Louis Armstrong coming out of New Orleans on whatever the big 50,000 watt radio station was and try to be Louis Armstrong. And finally realized he couldn't, but in the process of trying to imitate, he learned how to play the trumpet. Yeah. And then he was, he was uh, confident enough in playing the trumpet to appropriate what he'd learned and make it Miles Davis. He said, I think Bishop said something like, um, Miles Davis realized that he wasn't Louis Armstrong, he was Miles Davis, and that was a good thing. <laughs> well, there's the point though, for a lot of uh, artists is some of them stop at appropriation. Exactly, yeah. Right? They never get to innovation because appropriation can work. Right. I can yeah. sound like this guy and that's good enough. Uh, well, and the other the other piece about innovation, as I remember that chapter, was innovation is always a communal event. Hmm. Appropriation can be an individual like like you can mm -hmm. just you can go off and develop your own chops, your own voice. Right. Your own sound. Um, but if you're going to innovate, um, you do that in community. Hmm, that's interesting. Which I found really, because yeah. I, I think that's that's crucial. All right, listen, I got to go. I got hey, to talk to you so forever. Absolutely. Well, same here. Yeah. We'll have uh, to do it again. We have to do it again. Uh, <laughs> Brian Fraser, uh, uh, you have a website you want people to go to? Uh, there are two websites. The church website, which is filled with all sorts of, of church and jazz stuff, is brentwoodpcc.com. Okay. Brentwoodpcc.com. And then uh, the consulting website is jazzthink.com. Perfect. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And my website is ralphbenmergie.ca. If anybody's interested, I've got my book. I thought it was be. dead there. <laughs> I've got uh, a podcast that I do. And I've also, uh, you can become a, a, a Patreon uh, uh, contributor to the program. And, and I would encourage you to do that. Thank you. This is and, worthy of support. Yeah, and I'm really, I really appreciate when people go on uh, uh, Patreon and, and uh, contribute. So you can do that as well at patreon.com uh, slash NTKR, not that kind of rabbi, NTKR. Uh, and I have another uh, podcast I do for the Canadian Jewish News called Yehopitzville, about Jewish people living in far-flung locations around Canada. So you can join me for that one as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, listen, Brian, what a pleasure to speak with well, you. Well, Ralph, thank you for the privilege. It's been a delight, and I look forward to our next conversation. Me too, and I hope you get to this uh, neck of the woods sooner than later. I, I will. I will. You take care will. of yourself. And, and if you ever get out to Vancouver, make sure you hook up with me. Absolutely. All right. You owe me a meal. All right. You got it. Hot dog with cheese. No, I'm a Blessings, vegetarian. It won't work. All right. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>